This is Endless Reverberations. I'm Tree Mabry. To escape from such things is impossible. That's what the audience said time and time again. To escape from handcuffs, leg irons, straight jackets, padlocks, packing cases, locked trunks, glass boxes, filled tanks, and coffins. To escape when locked in a prison cell or hanging upside down or trapped in the belly of a sea monster. It just couldn't be possible. But Houdini did escape. Time and time again, he did the impossible. Harry Houdini demonstrated that nothing could contain him. Not even the laws of physics, so it seemed. But things were different on January 20th, 1908. Something had changed. Something was wrong. Houdini was two weeks into a four-week run at the Columbia Theater in St. Louis when Tate, the manager of the theater, called him into his office. Tate motioned for Harry to sit down. I suppose you know why I called you in here, Tate barked. No, not really, Harry lied, something he had a lot of practice doing. Tate slammed some papers down on his desk and yelled, Well, maybe you can't see it from your little cabinet, but there are a hell of a lot of empty seats out there. Harry just stared, unblinking at Tate. I don't know how you can do it, Tate snarled, but you better come up with something quick. You have two weeks, and if this keeps up, you're not worth a $5 bill to me. Harry Houdini, the master escape artist, was up against constraints far greater than chains or bars. As he contemplated Tate's words, he knew that his audience had become jaded. That's why ticket sales were down. People already knew that he could escape from locks and crates and handcuffs. They had been watching him do it for years. They knew it was possible. And the wonder was gone. That's the thing about the impossible. Once you show that it is in fact possible, it loses its power, its mystique. Harry had to find some way of regaining that power. Arthur always loved stories. But it was really more than love. He needed stories. He clung to them because they allowed him to escape. Growing up in 19th century Scotland, he had a lot to escape from. His father, Charles, struggled with depression his entire life, and his weapon of choice in this struggle was the bottle. Arthur watched his father lose himself so completely to the drink that he would forget his own name, dragging himself helplessly along the floor. Charles was an artist by trade, his drawings often depicting otherworldly scenes. But when his condition kept him from working for long periods of time, these otherworldly images began filling up the walls of his favorite tavern, where he would give them away for a drink. When he was not able to satisfy his addiction by trading these drawings of fantasy, he would even resort to stealing from his wife and children to pay for his alcohol and escape his reality. As Charles's condition deteriorated, he found that he couldn't help but escape reality. He began hearing messages from the unseen world and seeing devils everywhere. He was eventually admitted to a mental hospital. This is what Arthur needed to escape from. His mother also turned to stories as a way of coping and escaping from her husband's condition. 
Arthur and his mother spent much of their time lost in stories of medieval knights and dragons. Stories of good men doing good things and always defeating the monsters that stood in their way. It was a welcome fantasy. As he watched his family struggle to make ends meet, little Arthur's favorite story was much less fanciful. He would say to his mother, when you're old, Mammy, you shall have a velvet dress and gold glasses and sit in comfort by the fire. He would tell her this over and over again, and he was determined that he would be the one to give these things to her. He was going to give his mother the security that his family never had. Arthur loved stories, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories would indeed one day allow him and his mother to escape. Sarah Bernhardt was a rebel. The French actress was the most acclaimed and celebrated star of her day, but she was much more than that. What comes to mind when you think of a Hollywood movie star? A glamorous individualist who confidently marches in their own direction while others follow. Someone who's unabashed by the standards and norms and morals of everyday society. Someone who delivers unbelievable theatrical drama that is only outdone by the drama of their own personal life. Well, that's Sarah Bernhardt. Her life is the origin of our modern image of movie stars and Hollywood. She is the template. Before there was such a thing as movie stars or Hollywood, there was Sarah. She toured the world, proudly flaunting her beloved and illegitimate son in a time when words like proud and beloved and illegitimate were not supposed to go together. She collected an ever-growing menagerie of exotic animals, including a cheetah, wolf pups, a lion cub, and a monkey named Darwin. This eclectic collection was only outdone by Sarah's ever-changing collection of lovers, which allegedly included the Prince of Wales, several women, and most of the leading men that Sarah would play alongside. When she did occasionally sleep alone, Sarah would sometimes be found in the coffin that she insisted upon keeping in her bedroom. She claimed that it helped her get into the appropriate mood for her countless theatrical death scenes. Death scenes were her specialty. No one could collapse in the final act like Sarah. No one could passionately and helplessly beg for life like Sarah night after night for nearly 70 years. If Sarah's life didn't qualify her as a rebel, her countless deaths did. They walked towards a crashing ocean over a rickety bridge. He halted in the middle of the bridge and his two companions stopped behind him. Bess felt uneasy as she looked down into the fast-moving water. She had only just met these two Houdini brothers, and the darkness of the night made her wonder if staying home with her parents might have been better. She looked into Harry's silent face, 
and then quickly turned her eyes away to the crescent moon that was peeking in and out of the clouds. She watched the pale light slowly appear and disappear, feelings of excitement, adventure, and fear ebbing and flowing through her as she felt Harry's eyes on her. She had first felt those eyes on her from the stage at Coney Island. Bess's parents had forbidden her from singing in public, which made the adventure of standing before the crowd all the more intoxicating. Bess was not the good Catholic girl that her parents had prayed for. The 16-year-old was drunk with wonderlust and looking for an adventure. That's why she had joined the traveling circus. Rosabelle, sweet Rosabelle, I love you more than I can tell. As she sang and found those piercing eyes, a shiver went down her back. She had found her adventure. Over me, you cast a spell. I love you, my Rosabelle. As she finished her song, she was not able to turn away from those dazzling eyes. She couldn't escape, and she didn't want to. They were both performing at Coney Island in that June of 1884, Bess as part of a song and dance act, and Harry as half of a magic act. The most fantastic act of the Houdini brothers consisted of Harry being tied up and locked in a chest that his brother Theo stood beside as a curtain came down. The audience stared at the curtain as they heard Theo quickly clap three times. And when the curtain instantly rose, they stared at Harry, beaming back at them, casually standing outside of the chest. Harry then opened the chest to reveal Theo tied up inside. The brothers had switched places in a matter of a second, a seemingly miraculous metamorphosis. Now Bess stood on the rickety bridge with Harry and Theo, the waves roaring nearby. Somewhere in the distance, a church bell rang out 12 times to announce the witching hour. As the echoes of the final toll rang out, Harry took Theo and Bess's hands, clasping them together in his and raising them up towards the moon. Beatrice and Theo, raise your hands towards heaven and swear that you will both be true to me. Houdini whispered, never betray me in any way, so help you God. Bess and Theo solemnly repeated the vow. Another rapid metamorphosis was about to take place. Less than two weeks after Bess and Harry met, they were married, and Bess had taken Theo's place in the magic act. However, it would take many years of struggling and poverty and cheap vaudeville theaters before Harry succeeded in making the metamorphosis into the great Houdini, the handcuff king, the most spectacular escape artist of all time. You already know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story of detective work and triumphant rationalism the fictional story that takes place in a fictional world where all of the clues can be followed to a clear, irrefutable truth. 
You know that story, so I'm not going to tell you that story. Instead, I'm going to tell a story that takes place in our world, where people are fallible, and truth is seldom clear and never reasonable. On January 24th, 1887, a young Arthur sat down at a table with four of his friends. A feeling of nervousness and uncertainty filled the room. None of them had ever conducted a seance before. They decided, in order to get into the proper mood, they would read from the Bible, the first chapter of Ezekiel. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself. It wasn't that these young people's spiritual search was necessarily a Christian one, and the brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. It was just that they appreciated Ezekiel's imagery of otherworldly spirits appearing on earth. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, and the face of a lion, and the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. However, such an account of fantastic images set them up for a disappointment. For thirty minutes, Arthur and his friends sat staring at each other, their hands resting on the table, nothing happening. Then, finally, the table began suddenly rocking back and forth. This was something, but no fiery whirlwinds followed. Eventually, the friends called it a night and went their separate ways. Arthur was disappointed, but he was far from giving up on his desire for paranormal visions. After all, the Doyle family motto was, Patiencia vincit. He conquers through patience. Sarah was born in Paris in July, or September, or October, of 1844, or 1843, or 1841. We don't really know. What we do know is that at an early age, Sarah adopted the motto that she would live by for her entire life. Come, Mim, no matter what. As a young girl, she fell and broke her wrist after being dared to jump across a wide ditch. As she was being carried away, she screamed, Yes, I would do it again if anyone dared me again. And all of my life, I will always do what I want to. Come, Mim, no matter what. We don't know who her father was, and she didn't either. But we do know that her mother didn't love her, and attempted to turn all of her daughters into, at best, gold diggers, and at worst, prostitutes. Most of Sarah's sisters became entrapped in such circumstances, but not Sarah. She was determined to escape all limitations placed on her. She would stop at nothing to become more than the greatest actress of all time. She was determined to be free to do whatever she wanted to, no matter what. Harry Houdini left Tate's office that January morning in grim determination. He and Bess had worked so hard for so long, 
living on the road, performing in dingy carnivals and freak shows night after night, desperately hoping to be noticed, gradually gaining notoriety and respectability. Harry was not about to let all of that slip out of his nimble fingers just because of declining ticket sales. He thought back to that first night on the bridge with Bess. He had joined their fates together with his vow. It had been a point of no return. Bess had trusted him completely from that moment on, believing in him before anyone else. As Tate's words echoed in his head, Harry decided that he would do whatever it took to make sure that Bess's belief in him was not in vain. His mind shifted to another bridge, one that he had stood on not so long ago, less than two years earlier, in 1906. As he contemplated how to bring back his audiences, he realized that the second bridge would be just as much a point of no return as the first. It is often seen as a paradox that the creator of Sherlock Holmes, the patron saint of reason and cold scientific deduction, would have an interest in the paranormal. However, Arthur's attraction to seances and mediums, his desire to contact the spirit world through experience, isn't really surprising. Arthur was raised in the Catholic Church. However, his scientific studies caused him to become disenchanted with the belief in the afterlife. It was not so much the afterlife part that he had trouble with. Instead, it was the belief part. He wanted to escape from the necessity of belief. Sherlock Holmes didn't solve a case through belief. He always discovered the truth through observable, testable phenomena. Arthur could not bring himself to come to terms with the fact that Christianity asked him to believe in something that he could not see. So when he discovered spiritualism, the growing movement that sought to reach the spirit world through observable, testable experiences, it is little wonder that he was attracted to this new faith. In Sarah's day, acting techniques were stiff and stuffy. For example, while speaking, a performer was never to turn their back to the audience, and they were to reenact the specific formulaic movements and gestures written for their characters. Sarah turned her back on such conventions. She once said, He who is incapable of experiencing strong passions, of being shaken by anger, of living in every sense of the word, will never be a good actor. Sarah was certainly capable of experiencing strong passions, and she was certainly a good actor. She routinely sold out theaters and brought audiences to tears throughout the world, even in places like America, where people couldn't understand French, the only language that she spoke fluently. It didn't matter. To look upon Sarah was to directly experience drama and passion. Sarah was able to reach across more than language divides. In addition to female characters, she routinely played male characters. A short film clip has survived of Sarah playing the part of Hamlet at the turn of the century. And it's amazing to see the transformed Sarah, confidently dueling with her sword, exuding masculinity, 
Watching her, you're not struck with how well she plays the part of a man. You don't think about her gender. You simply are struck with how well she plays the part of Hamlet. It is probably this superb gender-switching ability that made her portrayal of Hamlet so respected and so scorned. It would be her most divisive role, but Sarah would always do what she wanted to. Come, Mim, no matter what. Black with humanity, that's how the bridge was described that cold November day as he hastily scribbled a makeshift will on the back of an envelope. I leave all to Bess. It wasn't much of a will, but seeing as how he was manacled with two pairs of handcuffs, partly undressed, shivering in the cold, surrounded by reporters, and contemplating the icy bite of the river 25 feet below him, a simple will would have to do. He walked to the railing of the bridge, thousands of eyes watching his every move. Factory workers, school teachers, vagrants, and lawyers all held their breath in silence as the shackled man stood on the precipice, stealing himself to leap into the unknown. As a nearby clock tower struck noon, and the echoes of the last chime rang out, Houdini shouted goodbye and leapt off the bridge. The people gasped as he plummeted through the air towards the surface of the icy river. From the time he let go till the moment he struck the water, everything was blank to him, and his ears were filled with strange songs. The humanity blackening the bridge came to witness a wonder never before seen. They had already seen a lot of wonders in the first six years of the 20th century. The first zeppelins and airplanes had carried man to heights previously reserved for the gods and the birds. The first polygraph test had peered into the hearts and souls of men, their truths and lies revealed through its omniscience. And Einstein's theory of relativity had unraveled the sacred riddle of reality. Yes, the people on that bridge had seen a lot of wonders, but what they were witnessing that cold November day was different. Not since the days of the Roman Colosseum had audiences gathered to watch a man struggle to overcome death. But even such great ancient pagan spectacles couldn't compare to what the people of Detroit were witnessing. Because unlike the gladiators of old, Houdini willingly threw himself into the jaws of death. When he triumphantly burst from the river, raising his liberated hands to the heavens, the spectators cheered the wonder they had seen. They cheered the man who had escaped death. Arthur's family had lost a lot in the Great War. His brother, two brothers-in-law, and his nephew, all dead. Such losses only increased Arthur's desire to pierce the veil of death a veil draped very tightly around his warring world. 
By this point, Arthur had attended dozens of seances and was becoming a very prominent pilgrim of the spiritualist movement. Two weeks before the end of World War I, he was preparing to give a speech on death and the hereafter when he received a telegram. Telegrams had caused him apprehension while his beloved son fought on the front lines, but now Kingsley was safely back in London. So it was with confidence that Arthur opened the message. What he read shook him. Kingsley was dead, a victim of Spanish influenza. This news caused Arthur to falter for a moment. Just a moment. But in the end, he decided not to cancel his lecture. Paciencia Vinci. He conquers through patience. Later, Arthur stared into the darkness, into the empty void, willing it to no longer be empty. He had come a long way from that uncertain, shaky table of his first seance. This night, he would experience wonders. At first, there was silence. But then came the supreme moment of his spiritual experience. Something that he would explain is almost too sacred for description. Out of the emptiness came a voice. Father, Father. Arthur whispered in response, Dear boy, is that you? He was answered by a strong hand that emerged out of the darkness, resting on his head, followed by a tender kiss on his brow. This was the turning point for Arthur. From this point on, he would be a dogged believer of the spiritualist gospel with no patience for anyone standing in his way. Sarah Bernhardt stuck by what she said as a child. All her life, she would always do what she wanted to, no matter what. Once during a Paris performance, a violent political protest broke out in the audience. All of the performers were intimidated by these radical students who made so much noise that no one could hear the play. But Sarah was not going to put up with this. She marched towards the students and single-handedly shouted them down. She would do what she wanted to do, no matter what. The students were so impressed with her passion that they settled down and clapped and cheered for the rest of her performance. This impassioned group of fiery young radicals grew to respect Sarah so much that they began calling themselves the Sarah de Tours in her honor. In a rehearsal for another play, Sarah erupted at the lighting man for training his spotlight, representing the moon, on Sarah's co-star instead of her. Sarah hissed at him. Excuse me, you have no right to take my moon away. The stage directions specify, my character advances pale in the moonlight, convulsed with emotion. I am pale, I am convulsed. 
I want my moon. Sarah refused to act for two days until the lighting man gave in and used two spotlights, one for each actress. Sarah would have things her way, even if it meant she had to make the moon multiply. When a critic published a book about Sarah that the opinionated actress found unflattering, Sarah showed up to the critic's apartment with a whip in hand. The critic was chased around the apartment, slashed on the face, and then barely escaped, leaving Sarah to tear the apartment to ribbons with her whip. All Sarah's life, she always did what she wanted to. But of course, sometimes life makes that impossible. Au revoir, my love. Au revoir. Sarah tenderly whispered to her son, embracing him. This was not one of Sarah's famous dramatic scenes. No, the drama of this moment was very real. The aging Sarah had passionately thrown herself from a parapet at the climax of a performance, and there was nothing to break her fall. This severely injured her knee, causing constant pain. So in 1915, Sarah made a difficult decision. It horrified her friends and family, but she had made up her mind. The pain was just too great. Sarah said au revoir one last time to her son, who in tears left Sarah alone in the operating room. Sarah had always been independent, but lying on the operating table, the great actress who would never let anything get in her way didn't look so independent. Sarah told her anesthesiologist, promise you'll really put me to sleep. Let's go. Quickly, quickly. To the anesthesiologist who had seen many of the actress's plays, the brave front that Sarah put on was a superb act. Sarah Bernhardt woke up with no pain in her knee because she had had her leg amputated. Sarah would allow nothing to get in her way. No matter what. Houdini set his grim plan into action immediately after the confrontation in Tate's office. His memories of the dark depths of that Detroit river and the excitement of the cheering crowd as he emerged victorious from the watery tomb told him exactly what he needed to do to bring the crowds back. Harry realized that if he wanted to remain the great Houdini, he would have to spend the rest of his life doing what he did at that bridge. He could no longer simply escape from handcuffs, leg irons, straight jackets, padlocks, packing cases, locked trunks, glass boxes, sealed tanks, and coffins. No, he knew his only choice was facing the ultimate challenge. He had to escape death. To escape from such things is impossible. But he was the great Houdini. He had done the impossible before.
Endless Reverberations is an exploration of the stories that shape us. I want to explore stories of the so-called great events and figures of history, along with the stories that you and I experience every day. Because the themes of humanity reverberate through all of our stories. Storytelling is a communal activity, and I want to thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher, which is also where you can let me know what you think of the show so far of a rating. You can help spread the reverberations by telling a friend about the podcast. Learn more about the show at EndlessReverberations.com, where there are links to the music used in this episode, as well as links to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the show's Facebook and Twitter accounts. Twitter is one of the best ways to keep up with what's happening with the show. Follow at EndlessReverb to receive tweets that reverberate throughout time. You can also email the show at endlessreverberations at gmail.com, which is the best way to contact me. I would be honored and humbled to hear any personal stories that you would like to share, and maybe we can share your story together on a future episode. Until next time, remember, all stories reverberate if we listen.